one, a change of background for something a wee bit more in keeping with the tone of the service, and two, I have limited time on this. And so this isn't a complete breakdown of everything. I, I just need to be very focused on what I'm saying. So I'm not covering everything, nor do I really want to spend my time trying to define marriage or defend marriage as a God-given pre-sin creational covenant between one man and one woman, even though that's exactly what it is. My aim today is instead to talk about marriages, not just in terms of what they are. But it seems strange to me that so many churches get up in arms about how the world doesn't know the true meaning of marriages, and yet we ourselves spend so much time um, not talking about them. And all we do is complain how everyone else is doing it wrong, but we don't really take any time to do it right. So today's services, we want to talk about fighting for intimacy in our marriages. I want to put some groundwork in this morning. And then tonight, the, the, the topic, uh, the sermon of the title is Four Pillars to Enjoy Your Marriage. Okay, so we're very much looking at how to enjoy your marriage this evening. So whether you're saved or not, this is important. This is the one angle that I'm coming from. But remember the premise of the spring clean. The spring clean comes after the stormy, cold, harsh winters where we put off addressing the things that we need to address. The winter time is about getting through the storms. It's about surviving and getting through. But the spring clean then is about getting things back into proper order again. And so often marriages are one of those things that get neglected during stormy times. Let's just get through, let's work hard, let's focus on the children, let's get focused on paying our bills, let's build a house before building a home. And all the while, the marriage gets pushed and pushed and pushed because it's flexible, because we say, hey, they'll always be there. But we know that that's not always the case. And I know some people are here and they've gone through divorce and it's not easy. Please don't take what I'm saying this morning as an attack on you or trying to kick you while you're down. Um, Maybe you'll see and identify some of these things and, and they happen to you and you'll know the importance of it and you'll agree with me and you'll say, yes, Jeff, you need to tell these people because that's, that's where we fell down. Divorces will happen in an imperfect, sinful world and sometimes they are necessary. Sometimes, sadly, they're even preferable in rare occasions. But the plan is not to kick people while they are down this morning but to give others a kick up the backside um, that we may need to stop sleepwalking away from each other. There was a woman who was feeling lonely in her marriage and her husband made an appointment at a counselor's office and the counselor was a trained psychologist um, trained to listen and make an evaluation as he was listening to the couple describe their relationship. Eventually, the counselor said to the couple, the treatment that I prescribe for you is quite simple. And the doctor stood up and he picked the man's wife up, embraced her in his arms, and gave her a long, passionate kiss. And then he stepped back, and the woman blushed, and was just a wee bit weak at the knees. And then he said to the husband, you see, that is all it takes to put the zing back into your marriage. And the husband the whole time is watching emotionless and says, doctor, that's great. I'll bring her in on Tuesdays and Thursdays for you. <laughs> Now, did the husband have a clue what was going on with romance in that marriage? No. Romance was long gone. What had no doubt started off like every other marriage as love's young dream where they can overcome any obstacle gives way to working late, uh, less date nights, eating dinner and watching TV instead of eating dinner and talking to each other. Text messages go from long rambling nonsense 
just to keep the conversation going where you ask random questions and get random answers. And you're just trying, you know, the conversation just flows in the early hours of the morning to little three-word bursts. Will be late. Out of milk. Where are you? What's for tea? That's what happens. Now, the point is that these things happen when we naturally stop putting as much effort into our marriages. When we're dating, we drop everything and we clear space for that person because, right, oh, I'm heading out with so-and-so tonight. Right, let's drop everything. We're going to go to the cinema. We're going to go for dinner. And the whole night is taken up with that person. Marriage, you can't do that because you're in the same house. You can't stop doing everything because that other person's there because they're there whenever you are. So we need a different strategy than just a to-do list or another strategy this morning. We need an el- a spiritual element, which is so significant. Intimacy is related to every other part of a couple's relationship. It never stands alone. It's ne- more than just adding a little bit of creative spice or sizzle. Um, we need to have the substance there first. You have to have something to build on. And we're going to go to Proverbs chapter 5 this morning. They're words from a father to a son. I like to see it as a father giving his son the talk, you know, the talk. And uh, all dads need to give their sons the talk, but where they come from, how things work, how healthy relationships work, how to identify unhealthy relationships. And so in chapter 5, um, verses 1 through to 14, he describes the disaster effects of sexual promiscuity uh, uh, before and even during a marriage. But verse 15 through to 23 re- shows how delightful marital intimacy can be, and that's what we want to focus on this morning. So these last verses in chapter, um, of, of chapter 5, begin at verse 15. The theme is how to have a love affair with your spouse. How to have a love affair with your spouse. Verse 15, he writes poetically, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his path. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Let me give you a different metaphor to paraphrase the whole thing. Sex and intimacy in a marriage is like lighting a fire in the fireplace in a cold night. It'll bring light, it'll bring warmth, and it is beautiful. But sex and intimacy outside of a marriage is like lighting the same fire outside the fireplace. Yeah, it's going to bring some warmth, but very quickly it's going to get dangerous and burn the house down. Now, how I want to handle this is by exposition, okay? So instead of me bunching around the whole Bible, trying to pick up wee phrases and pick up wee things to try and give you what I think a marriage should look like, I want to work through this passage. And then we can all leave saying, right, well, here's what Proverbs 5 says about a healthy marriage. And then at least we, we all know, okay, Proverbs 5, this is what it says about a healthy marriage. Because um, what works for Ruth and I um, may not work for anyone else. We have our personalities, our routines, our work patterns, 
And that requires us to work together in a way that may not suit anyone else. So better to go to Scripture and to see what advice God has given to all of us. And so three principles, three words. Covenant, contentment, commitment. Three C's. So number one, covenant is in verse 18 there. It says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now, these are not words that are limited to the experience of young people or newlyweds. It's the idea of that you made a promise when, when you were young, when you were younger. There was a promise made, a covenant that is made in one's youth should last throughout the entire lifetime, summed up by the phrase, the husband and wife of your youth. The wife that I have today is Ruth. Um, she is the wife of my youth. I like to think that I am still reasonably young. And then I look back and I see wedding photographs and I go, holy moly, I am not as young as I used to be. We're married 10 years this year. So yeah, she's the wife of my youth. This verse is not just talking about young people, but the promise you make to each other when you are young. That promise you made, these vows that you made, it's covenant. The idea here is a long-term relationship. I was looking at, you know, people get married now in very interesting places. You know, it's not just about churches and hotels anymore. Um, though, hey, let's bungee jump off a plane and say our vows as we go down. Um, or I, I saw one like on airplanes and air balloons. And, um, but there was one where there's 12 couples and they got married on a roller coaster. They booked out the roller coaster and uh, sort of there was vows kind of through the mouthpieces and they're all... And I thought, well, that's actually really appropriate. You know, if you want a metaphor for a marriage, a roller coaster is a pretty good one. You've got your ups, your downs. Sometimes you feel you're upside down. You've got all sorts of things going on there. But at the same time, maybe if you think of marriage as a roller coaster, if you treat it like that, maybe it'll be over quickly enough, just like a roller coaster ride. It's not stable. It's not steady. So when I read that, I thought, well, how do you stabilize a marriage? How do you stabilize a marriage? What is the secret to stability? Can be summed up in one word, covenant. Have a covenant marriage. A covenant is a Bible term that basically it's, it's, it's like a contract, but more than a contract because it, it represents responsibilities and relationship. Responsibilities and relationship equals uh, a covenant. So it's more than just having a marriage license. It's a binding agreement plus relationships. The co and covenant runs through the fabric of Scripture. Our God is a covenant God. His people are a covenant people. This book is a covenant book. It's a binding agreement with relationship woven right through the middle of it. For example, Proverbs chapter 2, we read, Wisdom will save you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant that she made before God. What that means is a couple makes vows to each other. They're in covenant with each other. I promise, contract, to love you, to honor you, to cherish you, to treasure you. That's relationship. Covenant. I promise to love. And there's a third party that nobody seems to recognize very often, and that's God. God enters into a covenant marriage. We see these vows before God. Malachi 2.14, the Lord says, She is your partner. She is the wife of your marriage covenant. Formal binding agreement. 
somebody once imagined a conversation that Adam had with God in the Garden of Eden. All the animals were brought to, by God and Adam checked them out and named them all. And the Bible says among the animals there wasn't found a helper that was suitable for him. And so in this imaginary conversation, Adam says to God, God, it's not fair. Uh, I'm, it's not that I'm ungrateful or anything, but these animals are cool. But I, I need someone who's a wee bit more like me. Someone who is uh, like me, but just maybe slightly different, softer, tender, beautiful, sweet. To which God replied, well, something like that's going to cost you an arm and a leg. So Adam says, well, what can I get for a rib? Covenant marriage isn't like that. You can't go partly into this. You have to go all in. It's a total commitment of yourself. Marriage is a covenant. Covenant means commitment bound up in a relationship. And it's a choice that you don't just make on your wedding day, but a choice you make every day. A choice you make every day. A choice to keep your promise. Covenant marriage is a marriage without an escape route. Without uh, a back door, you enter into the relationship and all the doors and windows are shut and locked. That's why whenever there's couples going to get married here in the church, I, I will ask them to go through counseling sessions before I marry them so that on their wedding day, they are able to honestly stand before God and say, until death us do part. Not, we'll stay together until we get old and ugly. Or we'll stay together until I get bored. Or I'll st we'll stay together until feelings do us part. But until death do us part. It's covenant marriage. Now, don't misunderstand me, please. I am not saying that lifelong monogamous relationships will solve all your problems. In fact, many people will tell you their problems start once they get married. But I am saying this. Intimacy begins, safety begins in a relationship whenever you go into that relationship with permanence. You go into the situation knowing this is permanent. This is covenant. That's, what's, that's where safety starts, where intimacy starts, when you feel safe with that person because marriages are doomed to fail if people go in with a different focus than that. If it's hard, I can go. If it's tricky, I can go. But how much safer would you feel if you know that that other person isn't thinking like that? It says, no matter what, I'm here. You feel safer. It was in Bible, Ruth said to her mother-in-law, Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. That's covenant. Hebrews 13, God says to his people, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Covenant promises. We live in a world now that hates the idea of permanence. We love flexibility. We love uh, the get, getting out of contracts. We love being able to work our way around the system. That's not covenant. It doesn't lead to loyalty. It doesn't lead to trust. And the science will tell us that if you go into a marriage thinking that it doesn't work out, you can just leave, those marriages are more likely to fail because they'll take that option once it gets hard. The marriages where people are bound together in covenant love, no matter what, you don't need to worry. I'm not going anywhere, no matter what. They're more likely to get through. I'm not saying that it's easy, but they're more likely to make it. If you're married and you're thinking about what could be or what would have been with someone else, you're breaking your marriage covenant. And only when you realize, this is who I married. This is who I promised myself to. This is who I've committed myself to. This is where my focus is going to be. Will the marriage and intimacy begin to return? Now, I know, I know, I know it takes two. It takes two. 
but you can do your bit and encourage the other person to do theirs. Proverbs 9.17 tells us about a seductive bimbo, basically called folly. Proverbs, if you want to think of it, as four or five different characters interacting with each other. And so we, we meet this woman called Folly. She's a seductive bimbo who tries to lure men away. And Folly will tell us, stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But the next verse tells us, but it leads to death and destruction. Yes, stolen water is sweet. Stolen glances are sweet. Stolen thoughts and images and fantasies might be sweet, but it is bitter and will lead to death and destruction. We need to move on. Next word, contentment. In verse 18, uh, and some of the wording here might cause you to blush a bit, but it's okay because it's Scripture. It's telling us in a veiled poetic way that romance and physical intimacy are good. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, graceful to let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Why go anywhere else and be intoxicated? Listen, God invented sex. He created it for our pleasure, and He created it to have a level of deep intimacy that is only safe within the confines of marriage, of covenant marriage. Not dating long-term, not engagement, marriage. C.S. Lewis said pleasure was God's idea, not the devil's. I like that. Pleasure was God's idea, not the devil's. Now, the devil likes to hijack what God does. He likes to twist it. But when the Lord created man and woman, he put them together in marriage before sin. That's the perfect sinless ideal, even before temptation and sin came into the world. And then in verse 15 and verse 18, and across this passage, we have all these adjectives describing the satisfaction that he finds in looking at his wife. Blessed, rejoiced, lovely, graceful, delight, intoxicated. Folks, be intoxicated with your spouse. Be intoxicated with who they are. Fight for that kind of joy. Fight for that kind of contentment. Enjoy each other. There's a twofold reason for sex. Two words. Um, babies and bonding. Um, babies, number one, procreation. That's reproduction. God said, be fruitful and multiply. But the second is bonding. Not procreation, but satisfaction. Satisfaction. Nothing binds a couple more closely and deeply together as this act. That's why the words that are used here are delight and intoxicated, but... Um, that, that moment, that act is a, a complete exposing of yourself. Uh, you're vulnerable. You're, you're naked before that person. It's why the Bible describes sex, uh, they use the word no, uh, K-N-O-W. And we read that Adam knew his wife. Abraham went in and knew Sarah. And uh, because it was more than just sex, it was a complete unity together. It was something that was beautiful in the deepest possible way. But sexual intimacy cannot be separated from covenant unity. One of the problems that comes up in marriage is usually sex. And it's usually a symptom of a problem somewhere else. And these things can't be separated. Um, you ever have a car where the light comes up on the dashboard? You have a couple of different ways of dealing with it. You say, you know, there's, something's telling you that there's a problem. Well, you could say, mm, my dashboard's broken. I need to go get a new dashboard. This one's lighting up. I don't like that. Or you could get a hammer and smash your dashboard. It won't light up then. It's one way to solve a problem. Or you can say, right, well, it's telling me that there's a problem somewhere else, so I need to go deal with that problem. I need to sort it out. Um, 
Ruth's brother once got her car through an MOT. Uh, he had a light on, and you know how they sort of fail if there's the lights on. So what he done was he put a he got a post-it note and wrote the details of his MOT appointment, stuck it on over the light. Clever boy, clever boy. <laughs> if you want a healthy, vibrant sex life in your marriage, start your problem solving somewhere else. Try a little tenders. Let, let, let me. Men are like microwaves. Women are like slow cookers, and you know what I mean. Men heat up very quickly, get stimulated visually, and it doesn't take very much at all. And that's why it's important for men to be very careful about what they look at, about where they go on the internet, about how they socialize and what, what goes on around them. Because men are like microwaves. Women are, are different. They uh, respond to tender, soft, meaningful touch, kind words, acts of kindness throughout the day. Physical enjoyment can't be a rush. It has to be cultivated tenderly. And if a husband treats his wife kindly just as they are getting into bed, I will guarantee that resentment will set in. I can guarantee that the wife eventually will start to feel cheap. And she'll doubt the sincerity of how she is loved. Because the kindness is only coming as a payment for something that they expect. Not because they genuinely love or if feel. Enjoyment emotionally and enjoyment physically go hand in hand, and husband and wife both need to know that and understand that. Very quickly, last one. Covenant, contentment, commitment. Here's the principle. Make a spiritual commitment. Verse 21, after all that he writes to his son about sexuality and marriage, he puts it in here and he says, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his path. It's fascinating when you see that verse that we all know in the context that it's in. Don't take the verse out of its context. Get what this means. God knows everything. He sees everything. So talk about intimacy. Talk about vulnerability. Imagine living with this in mind. Imagine what life would look like if you lived with the knowledge that God just heard the words that you said to your wife. God saw your motivation when you said that thing to win the argument, to shut her down or to shut him down. Or when you search deep into the back catalog of fights and you throw something back in their face and say, that'll shut them up. God knows the thoughts that you're thinking. He knows that we thought about how it could hurt. He knows that we thought about how we could win. He's watching it. He's listening. He's weighing it. He's part of your marriage. He's part of the covenant. And that's what I'm asking you to do. Bring God into your marriage. Bring him in and leave him there at the center. Bring him into the kitchen. Bring him into the bedroom. Bring him into the living room and all the other rooms that we've been talking about in this series. And live with that kind of accountability because people who make spiritual commitments to his lordship will find it easier to say no to sin, say no to temptation, to say no to anything other than having a more stable, satisfying marriage. Because our eyes are on God, and then our eyes come directly to the spouse that we made our vows to. 
read together, pray together if you can, when you can. Sum up these three principles, I'll give you this. Number one, don't leave God out of your marriage. It's his marriage too. That's how he sees it. It's his marriage too, not just yours. He's part of that covenant. Number two, don't neglect each other's needs physically. Don't neglect each other's needs emotionally. They're hand in hand and they are meant to be hand in hand. Don't cheapen it. Don't cheapen it. And finally, to be a good husband, to be a good wife, you must first be a good Christian. I want to close with a true story. Uh, I found this fascinating. A guy by the name of Jim Newick. He was walking with his wife, and there was another couple with him. So there was four of them, and they were walking, uh, hiking, and they were beautiful, pristine scenery, beautiful fir trees, mountains, and waterfalls. It was just really picturesque. Problem was that for Jim, Jim was fine on the outside, but on the inside, Jim was a was a storm because Jim knew that at that very moment there was a active tumor growing inside his body. And so as these two couples were walking, they came over the ridge of this hill, and there's this big, beautiful waterfall going into a lake. And just beside the lake, there was this beautiful cottage with a wee bit of smoke coming out of the, the chimney. Stunning picture card, uh, postcard moment. What they realized was that you could rent this cottage and stay there for weekends at the time. And so the wife, uh, Jim's wife, ran into the cottage to book a weekend in the next couple of weeks down the line cottage is booked solid for a year. And so the wife just said, well, that's okay. We'll book it for just the next weekend that you have, a year's time. We'll come back. And outside, Jim's just sweating. He's nervous. He can't get this. The fir trees don't look beautiful to him. Everything just looks gray and dark, and the clouds are there, and he's sweating, and he gets nervous. And the other couple notice this. Says, Jim, what is wrong? This, this is a beautiful place to stay. Why, why aren't you more excited? He says, my life's hanging in the balance. My wife knows this, but she's in there just making reservations for a year from now. She knows I'm going to be dead this time next year. And he told the, the other couple about his tumor. It turned out that that man, Jim Newick, had it all backwards. One year later, he was alive and growing stronger. But the mountain, the cottage, the waterfall, the lake was all gone. There had been storms and flooding and an avalanche, and it took it all away. The buildings, the mountain itself wasn't there anymore. What seemed like so strong and so stable and forever was gone in a year. And yet what seemed temporary and frail and passing, what one had almost already given up on, was growing and getting stronger. There's a spiritual principle in that little story. You might think your marriage is strong and will last, that nothing could take it away. Be careful. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. But also, you might be fearful and doubtful and pessimistic about your marriage, but take heart, because who knows what the future can hold. And I was thinking about Joel chapter 2. There's a picture of a swarm of locusts that have come in, in through the land of Israel. And do you know what locusts are? Little, like little bee bugs. And so they've destroyed the crops. They've destroyed the harvest. But the idea is that it's not one thing happening and smashing everything. It's not an elephant running through your field. It's, it's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of tiny little nibbles. 
lots and lots and lots, a tiny little nibble, 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 nibble. And if it does it enough times, and if it happens enough times, over the course of long enough, it'll destroy everything that's in its path. That's how a swarm of locusts work, isn't it? It's all the little nibbles, all the little nibbles, all the little nibbles. And I think it's how so many marriages wither away. Sometimes it is one big tsunami. But usually, it's all the little nibble, 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 nibbles. Sometimes you take a nibble out of each other. A little bite back here and a wee bite back there. But then God speaks in Joel chapter 2. And he says, but I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. The great locust, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, the, the great army that I've sent you, it's been tough. And maybe you feel like you've lost so much. But look to God, look to the one who can restore all that the, has been lost to all those little nibbles and all those little bites over time. Folks, we are simply the summary of all the choices that we have made up to this point. That's who we are. We are a accumulation of choices. The good news is that today we can make new choices. Today we can become the summary of all the choices that we will make from this point on. So make sure that the first choice you make is a choice that says yes to Jesus, that says yes to God, that says yes to Him. And put Him as Lord of your life and then let Him in that relationship prevail in every other area of your life. Let's pray. Father, this is the time that we're allotted. These are the words that have been considered. And yet I'm always amazed at how clear and direct and up-to-date the Bible is that speaks so vir about virtually every area of our lives. And when we look at the principles we draw in the Scripture and apply it to us, they make perfect sense. Lord, we know deep down their truth. We just pray that you'd help us to walk in those truths. And once again, we pray for relationships. We pray for marriages. Those who are dating, those who are finding difficulty in the first months and years of their relationship, others who have been struggling after many, many years. There are as many unique issues as there are people in this room. And yet you know every single person intimately and you love each person dearly. And we pray that with the power of your spirit and principles of the Bible and help of other Christian friends around us, that ours would be stable and driving covenant relationships. Scripture tells us that in all labor there is profit, and nowhere is this more true than in our marriages. And so I know, Lord, that I'm speaking now and praying to you in the presence of people who have broken lives and broken relationships. But that doesn't mean that they're unusable or unredeemable, but Lord, great news is you take anyone, you take everyone, and you redeem the years that the cankerworm has destroyed, the locusts have taken. And you give us newness to do over and do over. And I pray, Father, for everyone who is hearing this, that they would take hope in you and take hope in Christ and his promises and his salvation and his covenant. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back. We're going to uh, stand together and sing. And then we'll go into a time.